that, which I think I might have already done. <clears throat> so good to see you here this morning. Before I get started, I want to make just a couple of uh, announcements to let you know what's happening in different parts of the world. Um, received a, I received a an email last night. A current email was these these events are. Let me just pull that up real quick here. These events are have taken place just yesterday in uh, the country of Myanmar, which is under severe oppression and danger uh, for folks in that uh, in that country. <clears throat> this is this is current news. My son sent it to me last night. This is from missionaries in the country of Myanmar. Just 10 minutes ago, this was yesterday, just 10 minutes ago, one of our missionaries who is in the, in the Upu Chin Bible translators by name, uh, David called me and told me that Paletwa, Paletwa town in the southern Chin state has been surrounded by a military junta for four days. Many people have left the town and went into the forest for safety. Since my father is sick, I stayed at home with him. Pray for us. We are in danger. He names three other towns where the, where the military has come in. They are shooting people in the streets, breaking into people's homes, torturing and killing them. Now they're using, the military is using big weapons, he says, to fight and kill civilians. Today, a 10-year-old boy was killed by a bomb explosion in the Tedum, in Tedum town. Uh, Myanmar money or currency is very rare. Private banks still not functioning. Money is not transmissible. It's hard to say, uh, uh now, but in some places better sense of the mass killing and in places they are killing, shooting, arresting, torturing and robbing life. Our lives are in danger. Um, he says that he says that nearly, nearly 85,000 people have taken to the forest, left the towns and taken to the forest, and they're, and they're out there in the forest with no food and no provisions. I want to keep Myanmar in our prayers. China is pushing hard to take over Myanmar, and uh, so I want to pray for them. Also, just a word about India. I talked to Johan this past week, and uh, he says that things in India are really serious. Uh, I, I got it straight from the representative of India that people are dying at such a rate that they're piling their bodies in the streets and burning them to keep down because they just can't handle all the dead that are ha- taking place in India. Johan says that they are doing okay, but they are not... They're running, they run low on food and they're not able to find it. Everything is shut down in India. Everything. And, uh, so we want to really pray for Johan. Another, a word of praise, however, is that Johan and his wife, after 12 years of, of trying to have their own child, she is now pregnant with twins. So we are thankful for that. We've been praying for Johan and Joshna for so long and God has granted their 
prayer. And um, so we pray for healthy babies to be born into that family. Wow, lots of other things I could say, but um, we are very fortunate to live in this country with all of its problems and all of the difficulties that surround us and that's going on within it. We're still the freest people on earth. And we need to praise God for as long as that lasts. I think eventually it will come to an end. I'm not a prophet nor the son of a prophet. But I think one all, all one has to do is look at the look at the events that are taking place in the world and in our country and see that America will probably not be able to return to what it was 15 to 20, 30 years ago. So know what's coming. Prepare yourself for it. And stand firm. That's what we do. That's what Christians do. We don't riot. We don't, we don't succumb or, or turn to violence. We don't curse people. We love people and we love Christ and we continue to walk with Him and trust Him. And do the right thing. We do the right thing. The biblical thing. And then prepare to take the consequences for doing the right thing. Alright, enough of that. Let's turn to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. I'll begin reading at verse 6 through verse 13. There was a man... Sent from God, whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not that light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which lightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Let's pray. Father, we pray now your blessing upon the ministry of the word. This is the main course of our worship, and we pray, Father, that you would bless it, use it to teach us, to strengthen us, and to remind us of the great gift that you have given us in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we've been studying this great passage for quite some time now. Uh, I think this is the fifth Part from verse 6, we are now in verse 13. We've looked at the light revealed, uh, or the witness, the light witnessed in verse, in verses 6 through 8, the world and the light in verses 9 through 13, and now this is broken down into three parts. The light is revealed, it is resisted, and it is received. 
Now, we talked last week about the rights that God has given, the right that God has given to individuals to become children of God. And that is a singularly sovereign act of God and of His grace. Of course, we reference Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved. This is not your own doing. It's through faith. It's not your doing. It is God's doing. We will learn that so clearly this morning. This faith that God gives us, this belief, this reception of the Christ, is appropriated by the simultaneously twin acts of receiving and believing. Those who receive are the ones who believe, and those The ones who believe are the ones who receive. They work and go together. What are they, this receiving and believing? John says that it is receiving and believing in the name of Jesus. The name of Jesus. The only name by which people can be or must be saved. According to Acts 4, the name of Jesus is so primary to salvation that the gospel writers use it 499 times in the gospels. Matthew uses it 151 times. Mark uses it 13 times. Luke 88. But John uses it 247 times. The name of Jesus. In fact, the Apostle Paul writes and indicates to us that the name of Jesus will be the name that captivates all of eternity. Listen to what he says, Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name, definite article, the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, as we look at, as we looked at verse 12 last week, we saw that, uh, this word, this, this verse is very important because it indicates the, the, not only the need to believe and receive, but also what to believe and receive. It is not just claiming the name of Jesus is not just claiming a name or repeating a name as a mantra. He uses the term ice, a little, little Greek word, ice. If you transliterate it, it's spelled E-I-S. And that little preposition means uh, toward, toward something or moving toward or into the midst of something. You walked into this building this morning, you moved toward it, and then you came into the building, and here you are inside the building. This is the word ice. In verse 12, 
But all who did receive him who believed in his name, in his name. The word in is what we're talking about there. You don't just, it's not a, a mental assent. Oh yes, I, I, I believe the name Jesus as though he were just a man who was named Jesus. I believe into him. I believe I believe coming into the midst of Him. And so the one who believes enters into Christ and Christ into them. So that now you are in Him, not in the sense of just, of just being on the outskirts, but you're actually in the sphere of His life and being. The idea is of one's whole being... Being moving towards Christ and remaining in Him to find rest and peace in one's soul. Now, how is God's, how, how this, this is how God gave the right to people to become His children, His offspring. Now, we already established that He is not speaking about adoption here. You remember last week, we looked at the two different words that he uses, uh, the word huias and the word technon. He's using a word here, the word huias has the idea of a son who is adopted into the family and given rights as a son. The word technon has the idea of a child who is birthed, a child who is naturally born into a family. So that brings us to verse 13, where John tells us how God accomplished all of this. Look at it again, if you will. Speaking of those who are children of God, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. This verse, as well as any verse in Scripture, <clears throat> states the sovereign work of God in bringing salvation to His children. This verse explains why there are so few in relation to the world's population, why there are so few who did receive and believe the gospel in His name. It is because one has to be born of God. You have to be born of God. Jesus himself said that the number of those who truly believe would be small. Matthew 7 verse 14. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. He said in Matthew 22 verse 14. Many are called, but few are chosen. Now, this verse in verse 13 has five distinct parts to it. You can see it the way it's, the way it's uh, divided up. <clears throat> and all of those parts refute all of the notions of a salvation that is accompanied by any work or deed that people could assist in. It refutes them all. It makes clear 
that those who have become children of God are His children by His sovereign act alone. So let's take each phrase and get the understanding that the Spirit of God would have us to have through John as He intended it when He inspired John to write these words. I'm going to break it down. Here we are. Number one. The words, who were born. Who were born. By the way, there are no, there are no notes today because, uh, the printer went on the blink again as far as my computer's concerned. In fact, both printers here went on the blink. So I've got to have somebody look at them and see uh, exactly what's wrong there. Uh, hopefully I'll, when we get it fixed, I'll bring today's notes next week so you can have them. Because I know some of you like to take them and keep them. These words, who were born, speak of individuals who came into being by birth. Of course, here he's talking about a spiritual birth that he speaks of, but it relates to the natural birth. He uses the word Ganao, which, which is a preview of the dramatic scene in John chapter 3 when Jesus spoke to Nicodemus. And he said to Nicodemus that anyone who comes into a family has to be fathered. That's literally what it's saying. Has to be fathered. Listen to his words. Jesus answered him. Truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless one is genao, fathered, can't see the kingdom of God. He says in verse 5, Truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. The necessity of being born into God's family is absolute to salvation being accomplished. The other New Testament writers also teach the same truth. There, there's a string of, of them. I'll give you two. James 1 verse 18. Of His own will He brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of His creatures. It was His will that did it. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 and 23. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again. To a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Since you've been born again, He says, you've been born not of perishable seed, but of imperishable by the living and abiding Word of God. The terms, term born again <clears throat> was quite popular at the end of the 60s and into the 70s. As many of you were not living at that time, or if you were, you were very young. I remember, I remember writing to, uh, I remember writing to the Billy Graham Crusades in Oakland, California. And the term born again was on everybody's term. And you'd pass people on the road and they'd do this. They'd point up, upward like that. And that was a sign, at least a sign that they were Christians. 
But the point is that, that this term born again was, it was, it, it swept across the evangelical scene. It became so commonplace that even many unbelievers would use the term to speak of those who were followers of Christ. What about before that? Well, it goes way back. The use of this by unbelievers uh, was very clear. It was used by the cults of the early 1900s, such as Christian science, the Christian science cult, to speak of having a religious experience. And people would say, oh, I've been born again. Because they had a religious experience. By the 1980s, the term had become well established. And it was well accepted in the language of the culture. Many high profile leaders and celebrities began to use the term born again. To speak of some kind of religious thing that had taken place in their life. It became fashionable to be born again. That notoriety has now dwindled, but the truth of the new birth has not changed. Jesus said, John 3, 5, you must be born again. You must. Now, in order to prove that this spiritual family relationship is from God, John surrounds three negative statements with two positive statements. The first positive statement is those words, who were born. But then he gives three negative statements. And these three negative statements cover virtually every argument that people could use to speak of how they were saved, quote unquote, became Christians from some other means other than simple faith in Christ. Notice the first one. He says, they were born not of blood. This is very interesting. Because we earlier talked, I think last week, we talked about the Jews' pride uh, in, in themselves being the particular chosen people of God. We see that in John 8, where Jesus talked about Abraham, and He talked about them, and they said, well, we, we're from Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. They took pride in that. I want you to notice the word blood. The word blood here is actually plural. It is not blood, but bloods. Not of bloods. Seems a bit strange. There have been several or many variations of explanations as to what this means. Some say that it is the two bloods of a father and a mother mixing to form an individual child. Others say it is a long line of human ancestry. But I think that John is not talking necessarily about physical blood that runs in the veins of human beings, but of the lines of lineage that follow 
one's ancestry. My sister did a study of our ancestry. It goes back to Luxembourg, Germany in the 1500s, as far back as as we could get. So we know where our ancestry comes from, at least on my father's side. But this is what I think he's talking about here. Because the plural also matches the plural of children in verse 12. Children are plural. So what John is saying is, is that no one can claim to be God's child based on their earthly human ancestry. People are not Christians because they are born into a Christian home or raised by Christian parents. Becoming a child of God is an individual and personal relationship with the living God through His Son, Jesus Christ. And that alone. The idea of benefits and blessings simply because of racial descent is summarily refuted by Jesus in Matthew chapter 8. Turn with me to Matthew 8, if you would. Notice, if you will, beginning verse 5, Matthew 8, 5. When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him. Now, who is this man, this centurion? Well, he's a Roman soldier and a Gentile. Okay? So, Roman soldier and a Gentile. You cannot find anywhere in the history of humanity any greater divide racially than Jew and Gentile. Doesn't matter who you choose, where you choose it. The divide between the Jew and the Gentile was the greatest. He came to him appealing to him. This is what he said. Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. He said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Only say the word and my servant will be healed. Wow. Can you imagine? This is from a Gentile. Why this particular event? Why is it recorded for us? Well, carry on. Verse 9. For I too am a man under authority. He understood what it was to answer to authority. I'm under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go and he goes and another come and he comes. And... And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I say to you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. Wow. Now, remember, the Jews are standing around listening. 
Here is a Gentile, not just a Gentile, but a Gentile Roman soldier. Those whom they hated the most. This would have been a serious blow to those who relied on their ancestry to Abraham. Serious blow. I've actually talked to people when questioning them about, about their soul and, and their eternal, where they're going to spend eternity. And they make statements like, well, my daddy was a preacher. I remember when I was, when I was in the military, big strapping football player by the name of Ralph Cherry came and sat down next to me one day questioning me about my faith. I, I was, I had just been saved just prior to this. I had no idea what to say to anybody except God saved me. It's all I knew to say. But I did know that everybody else needed what I had gotten. Ralph sat down next to me and he talked, started talking and found out he's from Goldsboro, North Carolina. His father was a Baptist preacher. But he did not know the Lord. I witnessed to him best I could, gave him the gospel best I knew. Years later, years later, I heard that Ralph had gotten saved. And about four or five years ago, I picked up the phone and I traced him down and I called him. And I said to him, do you remember that day when you came down, came and sat down next to me and asked me about Christ? And he said, yeah, I remember that. See, folks, you never know what little seed you're going to plant or whether God's going to give you the ability to water that plant somebody else has sown, that seed, that will bring about life. He adds now another devastating blow. That if, that's, if that's not enough, look what he says in verse 11. I tell you, Many will come from the east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Wait a minute. <clears throat> from the east and the west? You mean, you mean other Gentiles from other parts of the world are going to claim Abraham too? Yes. Now listen to this. While the sons of the kingdom, who's he talking about there? He's talking about the Jews. The Jews. While the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, go, let it be done for you as you have believed your sir. And the servant was healed at that very moment. So Jesus said, there'll be many like him who will, who will recline with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But many of you will be cast into outer darkness. You think your ancestry is going to make it for you. It will not, Jesus said. Racial descent, blood descendants is not able to secure the new birth for anyone. Kings as well as paupers need to confess with their mouths the Lord Jesus and believe on Him in their hearts. What Jesus said has contradicted everything that the rabbis taught in His day. 
John knew the extent to which the Jews trusted in their genealogical heritage. And so he tells them, the new birth, becoming a child of God, is not by ancestry. It's not by bloods. Notice the second negative statement. Nor the will of the flesh. Nor the will of the flesh. It's not a blood. It's not ancestry. Nor is it the will of the flesh. Now this is a different. This is a very difficult phrase. Because John uses the, the Greek word sarx here. Which means flesh. The body. Paul uses this word. Many times in his writing of his letters, and not always, but many times it refers to the sinful character of the flesh. However, John does not refer to the to to that simply refer to the uh, sinful part of it, but the weakness of it. The flesh is weak. And so, it speaks of the passions and the seat of emotions rather than the carnal desires and impulses. John does not mean to convey this word, flesh, in an evil sense. This seems to be the case because we see him using the very same word in the very next verse with regard to the coming of Jesus as a Man, the Word became flesh. Same Word. It says he that He is truly a human being, a man like other men, except without sin. Paul, Paul also expresses the same thing. Listen to 1 Timothy 3.16. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh. He was, God demonstrated His Son by having Him be born as a person. Philippians 2 verses 6 and 7. Who though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself, taking on the form of a servant, and being born in the likeness of men. Jesus knew And taught that there was no power in human flesh to do anything that would secure God's favor. This is what he said in Luke chapter 3 verse 8. He says, bear fruits with keeping, bear fruits keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. Another attack on ancestry. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. God can bring children into this world any way he chooses. He chose birth. Spiritually. John 6 verse 33, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. This is Jesus' words. The words I've spoken to you, he says, are words of spirit and life. 
Paul also discredits the flesh among those who would look to it and trust in it for salvation. We need to understand that this was common among the Jews who looked to their rite of circumcision as proof of their piety before God. Paul seeks to correct and abolish that through the gospel, which he which sees the cross as the means of true circumcision of the heart. Listen to what he says, Romans chapter 2. A Jew is one outwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart. It's not enough just to have an outward appearance, a fleshly appearance. It has to be of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter His praise is not from man, but from God. He writes in Philippians 3.3, For for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and the glory of Christ and put no confidence in the flesh. No confidence. John destroys this idea that one can be Born and become a child of God through some kind of emotional or physical act or deed. It is not of the flesh. Notice the the last negative point here. It's not of bloods. It's not of the flesh. Nor is it of the will of man. Well, This this one is a big one in our time. This is the most stinging of all the negative statements to our generation who think they alone have the will to be saved. Or not to be saved. And this has been promoted for years, since the early 20s, by the Billy Sundays, the Gypsy Smiths, the... the, uh, The Billy Grahams, there are many others. Much of the evangelical landscape believes that all one has to do to be saved is to simply will themselves to be saved. This is why you have the decisionism running through the churches, pleading and begging with people to make a decision. Just make a decision for Christ. And you'll be saved. And people go away thinking that because they made a decision, they're saved, but nothing ever happens to their lives. In other words, the determining factor, they say, lies with the will of the individual. And that's why there is such a push to get decisions out of people among much of our evangelical Circle. Some may argue that surely people can get ahead in life by sheer self-determination or determinism. And the answer is yes, in life you can get ahead by self-determinism and to be having determination. A person may achieve all kinds of advances in life, education, career, family, and all of this accomplished by setting one's mind to the task. And working hard, one can even attain high levels of moral 
and ethical achievement the same way. One might even rise to great heights in religion and religious systems. But none of these things acted on by one's will can make them a child of God. None of them. Another aspect of this will of people for other people or of other of people for other people as much as we would like to and love to see people saved we can't save anyone we can't just make our will impose upon them and save them if we could we would all we can do is pro- is pray and proclaim the gospel Now look at the word will. Because we hear a lot about this. Uh, Well, uh, I have free will. I can choose or not choose. Well, you can. As long as you're alive. I can choose to sit in that chair. I can choose to stand up. I can choose to go to a place or not go to a place. How is that? How is that possible? It's because I'm I'm alive. I'm I'm living. I have a, I have a way of making those decisions, whether or not to do something by an act of my own will as an individual. But people who are dead can't act on the will because there is no will to act on. People who are dead cannot do anything. The word will, which is the same in both phrases, the will of the flesh and the will of man, means an inclination or an act or attitude desiring something, especially if it favors one alternative over another. Which one will you take? Oh, I'll take this one. There may be five or six available, but you choose one over all the others. And so... Here, it is coupled with the little preposition ek, E-K, ek. And that preposition means out of the midst of a group. Out of the midst of. Out from within something. You're in the church. You came in, as I said, into the midst of the church. You're now here and you go out from the midst of it into the outdoors. This is the word ek. So here he's speaking of desire, an attitude that is within a person, humanly speaking, to choose. And he plainly says they cannot choose. It's not of, it's not of the will of man. That one becomes a child of God. John's point is that no one can will themselves into God's family or anyone else either. It is not by the will of man. Then what is it? The last positive statement here. They are children of God. They are born not of these things, but... Of God. 
This is the great contrast that sets man's way against God's way of salvation. Man's way is the natural choosing means, <clears throat> natural choosing of means and objects of this world and this life to bring something to pass. What he is saying is that people can choose all day long. They'll never bring salvation or new birth to pass by doing anything or acting in any way. God's way is supernatural. He uses heavenly ways and means, acting according to His will with, with no regard to the dissent, desires, or determination of men. The phrase means that it is impossible for any sinner to become a child of God except by God's way you must be born again. That's what it means. John uses the imagery of birth to relate how God brings sinners into his family. How did you get here? Well, you were born. Did you have anything to say about being born? Did you direct it in any way? Did you add to it in any way? No, you didn't. You were born because God created you from your mother and your father to be born. God could have said, just determine that you're going to be my child and you'll make it. But that would have given fallen men and women the opportunity to boast about their decision. God could have said to fallen humanity to set their minds on heaven and, and desire heaven and you'll make it. But that would have been impossible for dead people in their sins to do. God could have sanctioned those who happened to be born into the right family on this earth to make it. But that would have played into the pride of fallen humanity. And what would they do? They would have glorified, they would have gloried in their ancestry rather than in the God who saved them. No, it, all, it had to all be done of God. All of it. From beginning to end. Man could have no part in the plan, purpose, or performance of it. Jesus puts it this way in John chapter 6. And we'll be studying all these verses in detail when we get there. He says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Wow. Wow. How would you like that if you wanted to follow Jesus? And he said, you can't, you can't come. Sorry. You can't come to me unless the Father draws you. But he says, I'll raise those up on the last day. It is written in the prophets. They shall be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. The paradox here is... That no one can come, but anyone can come who hears the voice of God through the gospel. Someone may say, well then, 
If that's the case, who then can be saved? And the answer is anyone who will hear and repent of their sins and believe on Jesus can be saved. I don't claim to be able to explain the paradox, but it's there nonetheless. His message is the same as it has always been. And here it is. Again, he appoints a certain day. Today. And he says, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Don't stiffen your neck against what God says. Receive and believe and repent and you will be a child of God. Born of Him. That's God's way. Let's pray. Father, we do thank You for this Lord's Day. We thank You for the message of the Gospel. We thank You for the Gospel of John and what we have learned from John's Gospel thus far. And Lord, we see that the simplicity of the Gospel is indeed the hang-up in the lives of men. To believe and receive Him who came as light and life. And yet, the deeds of people are so evil that they don't want the light. They hate the light. And we know that it can only happen that they love the light if you open their eyes to the light and allow them to see themselves in light of it. I pray, Father, that you would bless our time here in the Word today, that we would take it with us, that we would depend upon it and love it and believe it so that we might walk and live the life that Jesus desires for us to live so that we might be light in the world, the lower lights that burn, that others might see the work of God in us through Christ. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.